Welcome to The 5 by your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Mason tries to avoid bad luck with Friday the 13th, also known as Poison. Ruth and a special guest have fun being the villains in Villainous. I visit Regency England in good society, and Laura goes solo with the herbaceous solo variant. But first, Luke jets off to outer space in Pulsar 2849. Sci-fi is one of the most colorful and broad genres of fiction in existence, providing an endlessly variable canvas upon which some of the most famous stories in history, from Frankenstein to Barsoom to Star Wars to Neuromancer, have been painted. Yet, the board game industry has distilled these fascinating visions of the future into vapid, banal conglomerations of public domain clip art. There were obvious exceptions. Games like Netrunner, Rest in Peace, and Scythe at least presented some modicum of world-building ethos to sink our imaginative teeth into, but for the most part, it's just used as a throwaway theme. Pulsar 2849 is, unfortunately, the rule rather than the exception. It does, however, center on one of my all-time favorite mechanisms, dice drafting. Choosing from a limited number of randomized dice and mitigating that randomness by deciding which less-than-optimal choices are the most useful in the moment is exactly the kind of Eurogame decision-making I yearn for. Pulsar is an exemplar of the style, and its draft comes with a fascinating twist. After they're rolled, the dice are laid out on spaces corresponding to their values, and a marker is placed on the space containing the median die, literally the die in the physical middle of the line when all the dice are arranged in numerical order. Then, ignoring all dice of that value, the marker is moved half a space in whichever direction contains more dice. For example, if the median die was a 3, and there are 4 dice to the right of that space and 3 to the left, the marker would move half a space to the right. Whenever you draft a die, you look at which side of the marker it came from and move your player disc in that direction on one of two tracks. One determines turn order, and the other awards a catch-all resource called engineering cubes. Low-value dice aren't great for actions, but might put you ahead in turn order or get you more cubes, and vice versa for high-value dice. And because that marker is based on the median die, it always moves to keep those choices balanced. It is, honestly, one of the most unique and interesting mitigation and catch-up mechanics I've ever seen in a dice drafting game. Beyond the initial draft, the primary thrust is claiming pulsars and constructing energy harvesters called gyrodynes around them. Claimed pulsars and under-construction gyrodynes do nothing, but once you set a gyrodyne spinning, it generates victory points for its owner every turn, the exact type of solar energy produced by real-world pulsars. Players use their dice to fly around the star map, claim pulsars, visit resource-generating planets, build and activate gyrodynes, build transfer stations that provide points and other resources, patent technologies that grant one-time, ongoing, and endgame abilities, and do their level best to mitigate the dice they were able to snatch out of their opponent's grubby little paws. Almost nothing in the game that generates a lot of points can be accomplished in one turn. Players only get two actions around, potentially three by utilizing a fickle and sporadically available temporary die, and this just isn't enough to really set in motion the scoring elements that'll win a game. To make decisions even tougher, each player has a unique player board containing a tech tree that can result in massive benefits at its top, but requires dedication to fulfill and is yet another place requiring the use of their scarce and precious dice. That temporary third die is also a really interesting mechanism. Every round, one die won't be drafted. A player can spend four engineering cubes to copy that die and take a third action. Some technologies also grant a third die of a specific value, and transfer stations will grant one when two linked stations are completed. An extra action on a turn is powerful enough to incentivize taking any of these actions, because the whole game only lasts seven rounds. There's a lot here to unpack, and a lot I haven't really covered, but it all just works so well together. 
A double-sided board combined with randomized player boards, planet locations, and technologies add a ton of replay value. The box lists a playtime of 60 to 100 minutes, and with experienced players, I think that's pretty accurate. Our very first game took about 20 minutes to teach and lasted a little under two hours, and that time has steadily decreased with each play. Pulsar's surprisingly quick for the depth it presents. There's just nothing visually or thematically interesting here. The box art is fine, the board design and symbology are fine, the components are fine, it's all fine. It's not overtly ugly like Hansa Teutonica or Sentinels of the Multiverse, but in being universally inoffensive, it also manages to be universally uninteresting, which almost caused me, and I'm sure has caused others, to pass it over entirely. But once again, I'll echo my standard refrain. Push past the boring visuals, and you'll be rewarded with a mechanically stellar Eurogame that'll set your mind on fire. And I will say, despite its overall visual blandness, the circular board and the curved sideboards that fit around its edges are a cool design element, even if they do claim a lot of table space. I'll admit, before Pulsar, I didn't really know Vladimir Suchi. I know, I know, I should have. Last Will and Prodigal's Club are the exact type of Euro I love, but his games always flew under the radar for me, just like Pulsar almost did. Although Czech Games Edition's uninspiring art direction does a criminal disservice to Sushi's stellar design, after actually playing Pulsar and his phenomenal follow-up Underwater Cities, I will never forget his name. Dice drafters like Grand Austria Hotel, Twa, Panamax, and Coimbra all rank among my all-time favorite games, and Pulsar 2849 has joined them at the top. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Reiner Knizia's Poison, a.k.a. 13, a.k.a. Baker's Dozen, a.k.a. Friday the 13th, a.k.a. something else too, probably. Poison is almost 15 years old at this point, released in 2005, but I'd never played it until a few months ago. Friend of the show, Louisville Dad, was clearing out some old games and was kind enough to send me a few of the titles that looked like our kind of thing. It's a Kinesia, it's a card game, it's old and I'd never heard of it, and it's kind of mean, so yeah, very much our kind of thing. The box says 3 to 5, but I'm here to tell you we've played dozens of times now at 2-player, and it's great. This little deck of cards has a lot of flex in it, but I'll get into the preferred variants a little bit later. Poison has some slight similarities to one of my favorite games ever, Coloretto. Each turn, you're playing cards from your hand on a 1 of 3 face-up piles on the table. Your cards are colored and numbered, and you play light colors of cards on the same stack. If the stack value goes over 13, you have to take all the cards but the last one you played. Sometimes taking cards is good, sometimes not. You're trying to get the majority of any color you take. Cards you don't have the most of count against you at the end of the hand. Points are bad, and the best way to lay them off on other players is with these green poison cards. They get played in any pile and are worth 2 points if you have to take them, so they're both flexible and doubly bad. Even though Poison is a rules-light little hand management and disaster mitigation game, there's tons of emergence and long-term game strategy. Ideally, you'd put yourself in a situation where you took one more card of each color than the other players. You'd score nothing, and they'd score every card they'd taken, but that's not going to happen no matter how good you are. Poison plays very differently across player counts, but I enjoy all of them. Our two-player strategies don't really work at four-player, and I think the more players you add, the more of a chaotic party game it probably becomes. You've got around 50 cards, so if you're into card counting, you can deal out an uneven number of cards, the rules actually say this, which I don't understand, and really grind the math. Or you can play like we do and leave a little mystery by setting extra cards aside. At two, we deal out 13 cards, partially because it gives you just over half the deck, partially because it's thematic, and partially because it's comfortable to hold 13 cards in a fan in your hand, but 15 is just slightly too many. 
There's some two-player variants where you reduce the size of the deck evenly, and I'm sure that will work out fine as well, but I'd rather just shuffle up and deal. We play multiple rounds until someone crosses a scoring threshold, usually 50 points and usually me. And at two-player, we reduced the negative effects of poison cards to only one point instead of two points because it felt a little overly harsh for the number that you end up taking. Though it's perfectly fine for hands to be wildly unbalanced in poison because you're playing many, many of these hands in a game. A big part of why I enjoy poison is the input randomness of the hand as dealt, mitigating bad hands and exploiting good ones. The rules as written allow you to start the three piles of cards on your own, but we prefer to deal out one of each color to quick start. It helps give a little structure and direction, especially if you're teaching the game. There's a significant amount of pressure, luck, and screwage as well, coupled with trying to figure out what the other players are likely to have while distracting them from what you might have. If you just love card games like I do, Poison flips all the same switches as other really good little card games. Version and box size are a weird one here, but I'll try to clarify it. The original 2005 Playroom Games version is obscenely oversized. It's a single deck of cards in a 7x9-inch box. It also came with these huge and totally superfluous cardboard cauldrons. We ultimately decided to ditch the box, and we now keep the deck in one of the little clear plastic card boxes from a 60s copy of Old Maid. Most likely a Whitman Games copy of Old Maid, but that is a separate discussion for my entire podcast only about Whitman Games novelty toys. There's a 2008 Amigo edition that's the same art in just a small card box, uh, like other Amigo games, and I'd recommend that one, or the themeless Amigo version, which is just called 13. I would avoid Baker's Dozen, as it comes in an oversized Happy Meal-style fake donut box, and the cards are round with holes in the middle, which is just terrible. I also don't particularly care for the art in Baker's Dozen. Unfortunately, the most readily available version is the 2014 Yellow Games Friday the 13th edition which is sort of cute, I guess, but it uses these little square cards which are just garbage. Side note to publishers, there's a reason that cards are shaped like they are. They're comfortable to hold and easy to read, so please stop trying to stand out with your goofy card sizes. No one wants them, they just want to sleeve the cards in normal size sleeves. Please, please, please stop doing this. So anyway, who should play Poison? People who like a mean little card game. That's it. If you don't like mean little card games, Poison isn't for you. I give poison four out of four vials of henbane poured into the ear of your romantic rival. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here. Today I'm going to be talking about Villainous, designed by the collaborative group Prospero Hall and published in 2018 by Wonderforge. This game puts two to six players in the roles of iconic Disney villains and is a completely asymmetrical game with each villain having their own evil plot to complete first in order to win. Interestingly, Villainous is readily available in big box stores, being marketed to a less hobby-focused audience. So I decided to bring in a less immersed-in-the-hobby gamer to talk about it. So similar to Mike and his daughter's father-daughter review of the Tea Dragon Society back in episode 38, here's a discussion of Villainous that features my mother, Liza. Alright mom, first of all, thanks for agreeing to do this. So unlike many of the games you've played, you were actually introduced to Villainous by some of your friends, and not by, well, me. What were your first impressions of the game? First impression? The overall look of the game. I loved the artwork and the pieces for each character. They felt good in your hand. After that impression, the panic set in. The game seemed so complicated. It is certainly a lot to take in at first. Each turn of the game involves an active player moving their character's pawn to a new location on a board and then taking the associated action. Player interaction comes from those actions that let you choose another player's fate deck to play cards from, 
with those cards being heroes or other setbacks that can follow their plans when played onto their personal board. This makes Villainous a trickier game to pick up than some, as since every player's goals, actions, and card abilities are very self-contained, then they're able to be very different. And the designers certainly took this and ran with it. How did you find the entirely asymmetrical nature of the game affected your experience as a player? I love it. It is quite tricky to master, and I have not. I do think it helps to stick with the same character when you're playing. For example, the first time I played Hades, I did not start moving my titans right away. I realise now that was a big mistake. Right, and it's easy to do on the first time with a villain, but it's certainly something you can learn from for subsequent plays. I've also found when I'm playing that it's better to start with smaller groups, especially with some of the more complicated characters. How have you found it? Yes, the fewer players, the easier it is to track what others are doing, and hopefully block them. Yeah, and definitely some characters are easier than others, but I know you said you thought that easier characters are also easier to block. Definitely, you you can see whether they're near the finish or not. Now, obviously the big appeal for many when it comes to villainous is the theme. And I know you're a fan of Disney and honestly a fan of Disney's villains in particular. So how well do you think they incorporated the theme into the game? Very well. Each villain stays true to character. I also found when we were playing, we seemed to take on our character's personality. It's a lot of fun and I really don't think it will ever get old. And then, let's be honest, even if you master one villain, there's always another one to try. Especially because two standalone expansions have already been released for the game. Each of those can add to the selection of characters found in the base, or they can provide a two- or three-player game by themselves if you're interested in trying out Villainous, a game recommended by multiple generations of our family. Now, Mom, there's only one last question I have for you. Who's your favorite villain? I would say Hades. Though probably I'm biased because I loved Hades long before Villainous was published. Nice. I'm personally looking forward to trying out Yzma from one of the expansions on future plays, especially that wrong lever card. And for everyone out there listening, my mom isn't on Twitter, but if you want to share who your favorite villains are with us, you can find me there at Ruth. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a game group in possession of a love of Jane Austen must be in want of a game like Good Society. Designed by Haley Gordon and V. Hendro and published by Story Brewers Roleplaying in 2018, Good Society is an RPG set in the world of Jane Austen. You and your group populate a small town in Regency, England. Players choose a family background and a role for their character that together define the character's position in society. Like the dashing foreigner looking to re-establish family ties, or the daughter of new money who seeks acceptance from established society, but also secretly resents them. At the beginning of the campaign, players give each other cards that define their character's relationship to each other. Your character could be one person's old flame and someone else's rival. Players also each get a secondary character. These are drawn from a deck of cards, assigned a connection to one of the primary characters, and used to deepen and enrich the society in good society. The character cards give you a thumbnail description, and their personality quirks can be quirky. Our game includes a gossipy physician, an imposing widow, and an amateur botanist, played by me, who compensates for social insecurities by talking about the Latin names for plants, which is a whole lot of fun to play, let me tell you. But I think my favorite secondary character is the cigar-chomping young gentleman we call Bastard James. 
Okay, my name for him includes a word I can't say on this podcast, so Bastard James it is. Bastard James provides comic relief, he cheats at cards, and his favorite pastime is steering a main character who's rich and not too bright into foolish situations while simultaneously sponging off him. Our group loves storytelling games like Once Upon a Time, and we all love reading, but none of us had recent experience with RPGs. Good Society was a perfect way in for us. First of all, we get to create and star in a story set in the world of a beloved author. I mean, how cool is that? The small town setting and the focus on personal connections present opportunities in every session to create moments of magic with your friends. High drama, sparkling wit, broad comedy. And beyond that, good society just feels approachable. There's no dice and no GM. There is a facilitator who doesn't play a main character. They play additional secondary characters and also keep things moving along. But decisions about story and where the campaign goes are made by the group, not by a GM. Good Society limits the ability of any one player to dominate the game by giving each player resolve tokens, which you have to spend if you want to do something significant or unlikely. There are a limited number of these tokens, so you can't have all story ideas coming from one player. And if your idea affects another character, you have to give the token to that player and negotiate their agreement. They can say yes, they can say yes but and add a condition, like, yes, you can be the long-lost heir to my family fortune, but I want to receive a letter saying I got my commission as an officer. Or they can say no. And I love that Good Society gives players permission to say no to story elements they aren't comfortable with. Role-playing creates vulnerability, especially a game that's all about relationships and emotional connections. Good Society encourages this vulnerability with its thoughtful approach to collaboration and consent. A game set in Regency England could be narrow and rigid about race and gender, but Good Society puts effort into inclusion. There's racial diversity in the character art, and while the game is set before the British Abolition Act, players get to decide how strict they're going to be about history in the game, so there's no reason not to be inclusive. Good Society also deals explicitly with gender, allowing players to choose to follow traditional gender roles, remove gender restrictions entirely, or reverse them, making women the landowners and military officers, and putting men into the social sphere and marriage market. Our group decided to stick with traditional gender roles. The men in the group vetoed reversing them, I think because they'd already come up with characters that wouldn't work. And we decided that since we're all so familiar with the gender roles of Austen's novels, we didn't want to just toss that out. We are mostly new to RPGs, and we thought keeping some limitations might provide some structure that made storytelling easier. I do hope that at some point we'll play again with one of the other options. And even in this campaign, we've pushed the boundaries a bit, including a budding romance between two male secondary characters, the gossipy doctor and the amateur botanist. We didn't plan for that to happen, but what can I say if the spark is there? There is a certain amount of upkeep in a session of good society. Structured phases where players create and spread rumors, evaluate reputation based on the previous scene, and request monologues from other players, which is a nice way to engage players who maybe didn't have as much of a role that day. There's even a phase where players compose letters to move the story forward. You don't literally write them, you just say them out loud. I almost wish we did get to write the letters, although I guess that would slow gameplay down significantly. Good Society is available on the Story Brewers website, with PDF or hardback book options depending on your budget. There's also an extensive video series by the designers that walks you through campaign setup and how to roleplay a typical scene. If you're new to RPGs or just a little uncertain of how this one works, it's a really helpful way to get your feet under you. At the start of the campaign, the group chooses a tone to follow, from lighthearted farce to serious drama. 
We chose farce because, in the words of Jane Austen, for what do we live but to make sport for our neighbors and laugh at them in our turn? And that's good society. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not spreading malicious rumors about my rivals, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Ovenall. Hi, everyone. It's Laura. Today, I'm going to revisit a game that Ruth covered way back in episode four, Herbaceous. If you haven't had a chance to listen to her review, definitely check it out. She covered the multiplayer rules, and today I'll be focusing on the solo variant. Herbaceous is a one-to-four player set collection game published by Pencil First Games in 2017, designed by Steve Finn with solo rules by Keith Mateka. And right out of the gate, the fabulous artwork by Beth Sobel lets you know that you're about to play a relaxing game about gardening. The goal of Herbaceous is to score as many points as possible by strategically collecting and potting plants into various containers. You'll have the same four container cards every game, and each one has unique properties that translate into scoring conditions. So, how exactly do you collect cards? Each turn you draw three cards from the herb deck and place one in the community garden, one in your private garden, and one in the discard pile. You then have the option to take as many cards as you'd like from the two gardens and pot them by placing them under one of the container cards. You only get to take this action once per container, meaning that you can't add more cards to a set once you pot them. A solo game of Herbaceous uses half of the 72-card herb deck, and so you have exactly 12 turns to collect four sets and pot them into the four containers. And while you don't have to worry about other players taking the cards you want from the community garden, the solo rules create scarcity by forcing you to discard the entire community garden if it ever gets up to five cards. This keeps you on your toes. There are already two cards in the community garden at the start of the game, and so you haven't even taken three turns yet when you have to decide whether to pot cards, usually before you're ready, or sacrifice five cards to the discard pile. And as I mentioned earlier, you also have to discard one card every single turn, which forces you to make tough calls. Do you pot those three rosemary cards now, or wait until your next turn in the hopes of collecting one or two more? Maybe you decide to wait and get rewarded with one more rosemary, but you also get a mint and a time, both of which you've been waiting for to maximize your points for the glass jar container. No matter which one you discard, it's gonna hurt. Now don't get me wrong, I wouldn't call this game a nail-biter. It's actually the opposite. It's the kind of game I reach for when I want to unwind at the end of a long day. Because as soon as I open the box, I get that feeling of, (sighs) from the illustrations of plants to the design on the back of the cards to the little cardboard garden markers, all of it is lovely and soothing. There are interesting choices and a press-your-luck element, but it all feels low stakes in the best possible way. Garden pun not intended. A lot of it comes down to chance, not only with card order, but which cards end up in the deck. You could make some rough probability calculations as part of your strategy, but that can only get you so far when you're playing with half a deck. So if you discard this sage, will there be another one? Maybe. Maybe not. If you love solo games that provide a challenging puzzle to crack, Herbaceous won't fit the bill. There's also no way to lose the game. Instead, the solo rules provide a legend that rates your score. I personally don't mind a beat-your-high-score type of victory, but I know that some people prefer a clear win condition. So, the big question. Does the solo variant match the multiplayer experience? I have no idea. I've only played it solo. Do I think it's worth playing solo? Yes. Do I recommend spending about $20 if you're only going to play it solo? Probably not. For that price point, there are other games that offer a richer and more varied solo experience. But for me, even if I never end up playing Herbaceous with other people, 
I'm happy to have this lovely and relaxing little game on my shelf. And that's all I got. I'm Laura Donovan Bannister, and you can find me on Twitter at Laura Wrote It. You've been listening to The Five By, the all stuff, no fluff, and just long enough board gaming podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at fivebygames.com. From all of us at the Five By, thanks for listening. The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.